I want to recommend, I, I was away in retreat when this came out. Also, when I'm in New Zealand, I'm not very keen on paying $14 every issue of New I really like the New Yorker. In New Zealand, it's $14 an issue. Um, but when I get back, my dear friend Stephen Foster gives me a stack of New Yorkers to read. And this one I missed, which I really like, is, is an article on um, Dr. Ramachandran, who you might recognize as a great brain researcher, great neurologist. This is in the, you can download this. Uh, Saskia's photocopying uh, one copy out there so you can at least reference it. But you can download these off the net, I think. And this is um, May 11th. But it's all on Ramachandran. It's wonderful on neuroplasticity the work that he's done, but it's very personal on a, a great genius who's a totally passionately interested person who is like the Sherlock Holmes of neurology. And uh, one of the books which I, my, one of my favorite all-time books I've ever read is Phantoms of the Brain or of the Mind? Phantoms of the Brain. Wonderful book, wonderful book. And he's one of the pioneers of, of neuroplasticity and what is possible with brain damage, what is possible, except for him finding where he parked his car. He, no matter, on every day, he can never remember where, he's a neurologist, right? And he helps people with severe problems, but he can never remember, and his wife tells a funny story, he can never remember where he parked the car. So he often has to use the alarm to, to find it. Uh, and yet this man's a, a brilliant genius, you know. He's one of the greatest neurologists that's ever lived. Uh, you can tell he's just an absolute character. Uh, I think he's also, he also gives a wonderful talk on TED, if you know TED, on the internet. Wonderful talk. And uh, so I recommend that. If you don't know anything about neuroplasticity and you want to be introduced to a, a character who's an absolute genius and give you some confidence that anything's possible, uh, there you go. Ramachandran. Uh, Ramachandran. R-A-M-A-C-H-A-N-D-R-A-N. That is Rama Chandran, which is the fire, fire mother desire of the moon. Something like that in, in Sanskrit. Lovely. Next, I, wanted, I want to read you, this is also, and I, I recommend another book. The Brain That Changes uh, Itself. This is lovely. This is a lovely, well-written book. Highly recommend it. It's already a bestseller. Uh, it's beautifully written, and it's got enough technical meat in it to sink your teeth in a little bit, and it's wonderful for those that don't have any technical background. So if you have any doubts about how plastic, flexible you are as a human being, uh, read this book, and it will, I hope, demolish some of the doubts in you, some. Uh, Norman Deutsch, wonderful Trontonian uh, psychotherapist. Lovely book. He's talking about, I just want, to, just want to read a little bit from this book. He's talking about doing all these mind exercises. You know, there's all kinds of programs now for 
reinvigorating your mind, uh, learning languages, helping you with language difficulties. There's all kinds of exercises coming out from different places in, in the United States and Canada. But I like what he's written here. He says, but life, he's talking about exercises, but life is for living. And not only for doing exercises, so it is best that people also choose to do something they've always wanted to do. Hmm? Because they will, they will be highly motivated. Hear that word again? They'll be highly motivated because it's something they want to do. Which is crucial. Now, I, I underline that, the word crucial. In English, that means essential. If, if you're not motivated and you're not interested, forget it. Some people come up to me and say, I want to meditate. I look right at them and say, why? I'll tell you another funny story. Many, many years ago, when I was resident teacher of the Dharma Center, one of my many incarnations as, Dharma, as resident teacher of the Dharma Center, somewhere in the 1990s or something, but a lady came up, and I'd seen her around studying with my teacher for years and years and years. She came up to me, and I was, she said, I'd like to have an interview. I said, okay. And so it came out. I said, what can I do for you? She says, could you give me meditation? I said, why? She said, what do you mean, why? I said, well, what do you need one for? I mean, she's been around for like 10 or 15 years. Why do you need a meditation? You probably have hundreds. She said, you're not supposed to ask me that question. <laughs> I said, why not? She says, well, you're a meditation teacher. I said, no, I'm not. She says, yes, you are. I said, no, I teach Dharma. I said, I can teach meditation. But she said, she says, wait a minute, you're not, I'm asking you for a meditation. Can you please just give me a meditation? I could hear the, the energy. I could hear the desire behind it. So there's no way I'm going to give her a meditation. <laughs> said, no way. So she's getting madder and madder. She's like, would you just give me a meditation? I'm going, no. I said, Why? Why do you want one? She says, what do you mean, why do I want one? I said, well, why do you want? You see, because I could tell there was no interest at all. There was simply no interest in that there was something else going on. I could pick, I could smell, you know, how the mafia, was, I smell a dirty rat? I could smell a dirty rat. Picked it up instantly. And, she's, and she, I said, well, what, why do you want it? She says, well, after a while I dug it out, which was, she's leading workshops. And that weekend, she was giving a workshop, a drama workshop, where she wanted another technique to give to others, not for herself. There was no genuine interest. So she struggled with me. It was basically, would you just give me a meditation? I said, no. And then I said, okay, okay. I relent. I relent. She says, oh, okay. So could you? I said, yeah. I'll give you a meditation. So what is it? I said, well, here, I want you to ask yourself the question. Just repeat it over and again. Why do you want to meditate? That was the meditation. There's no, mo no motivation. Meditation goes nowhere. If there's no genuine interest, it dries up so quickly. You have to literally know why you're meditating. It's more important that you know why you're meditating and have, it, and have you guided to where you're going in meditation or the feeling for the exploration of meditation than any technique. I guarantee it. Technique is good as long as you're interested in unfolding that and you have some question behind it. That's the, so motivation is the number one key.
my beloved teacher just used to throw questions at me. He said, here's a question. Go away. See you next time. Have it done. Just, just, just here's a question. Or, or have this medit- body of meditation done, just knowing I had the interest. It didn't require a lot of fine-tuning. Just go and explore. Just go off and explore. If you have the interest, you go and explore. Okay, back to the book. Okay, highly motivational, which is crucial. Mary Fasano at age... Now, this is to give you hope. Who, who in the room is above the age of 50? Above, above the age of 50. Okay, confession time. Now, this is, this is hope for you. Mary Fasano at age 89 earned her undergraduate degree from Harvard. David Ben-Gurion, the first prime minister of Israel, taught himself ancient Greek at an old age probably 35, no, old age, to master the classics in the original. We might think, what for? Who am I fooling? I'm at the end of the road, but that thinking is self-fulfilling prophecy, which hastens the mental decline of the use-it-or-lose-it brain. If you don't use your brain, then something that you're doing takes over that area. Do you know that? If you don't use parts of your brain, it's not that you're not using parts of your brain. Your whole brain is being used. Your whole body is being used, every single cell of your body. But if you're not using it for something else, something else will invade that area and use up that space, that real estate. That's all. It can can be changed, but that's how the nervous system works. At 90, the architect Frank Lloyd Wright designed the Guggenheim Museum. At 90. At 78, Benjamin Franklin invented bifocal spectacles. In studies of creativity, H.C. Lehman and Dean Keith Simonton found that while the ages of 35 to 55 are the peak of creativity in most fields, people in their 60s and 70s, though they work at a slower speed, their hard disk works slower. They are as productive as they were in their 20s. When Pablo Casals, the cellist, was 91 years old, he was approached by a student who asked, Master, why do you continue to practice? Casals replied, because I'm making progress. Sometimes people ask me, well, when, how long do I have to meditate before when I'm finished? What? You just give me a meditation so I can be finished? What? There is no finishing. Life has no beginning and it has no end. There's no finishing. And if you get over your suffering, how about everybody else's? You're never finished. As a matter of fact, get over your suffering and it's just begun. You're suffering, actually. Because you've got everybody else's to contend with. The historic Buddha practiced the meditation on Anapanasati on breath his whole life. Now, he was credited to be, supposedly, a fully, completely liberated human being. Supposedly. I'm not going to dispute that. Neither for nor against that. But here was a person who was supposedly completely free, unobstructed mind, who meditated on breath for the rest of his life. Why? Because he was unfolding things. He used that as a vehicle. 
Today I gave someone, I'm going to go into more on meditation in a minute. Today I gave someone an illustration which I want to bring to you about what, medita- what spiritual work is like. And I'm not that keen on spiritual work, on the word spiritual, but I, it's fine. I like uh, a human being unfolding, unfolding or blossoming. I prefer that. But I want you to imagine that every one of you, which is a pretty good metaphor, is a musical instrument. You've got a voice box. You've got cells that are vibrating. You play tunes. You give songs. You, some of you write poetry, yes? Some of you sing. But we communicate all day, right? Internally and externally. That is an instrument. What does it take to play the human instrument really well? That's, to me, what this work is on about. You've got an instrument. You could learn to play the cello really well. You could learn to play the flute or guitar really well, really well. You could learn to raise a family, as some of you have done. You can learn to have wonderful relationships and go to work and have wonderful careers. But you already have an instrument, an amazing, wonderful, complex, wondrous, extraordinary instrument that you may not be playing fully or even partially well. Do you you follow what I'm saying? If you have this glorious instrument, why do you keep, not saying you shouldn't, turn to other instruments, but why not develop this instrument really, really well? You were born with it. It's what you carry around. The amount of time it takes to become adept at a musical instrument, the cello, I know, I've tried. And because I've been traveling, I I sold my cello to someone who could actually practice, and David Berry is doing very, very well with it. Uh, I'll either, eventually, when I'm a bit more settled, uh, pick up the cello again or try something like oboe or something like that, which I used to play. It's lovely. Do you all know how long it takes to become adept at a musical instrument? You need to practice a good three, four hours a day. You need to put a lot of time into it. And when you get into your 40s and 50s, oh my goodness, it's lovely. It's such a challenge. It's great. I tried. I started playing cello when I was in my 40s. It was funny with my cello teacher. It's terrific. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. But the the to play the human musical instrument well is like learning to play a musical instrument really well. Why not? I don't, I don't know why it is that Western human beings, I'm going to go Western, which is also Eastern now, but I don't, I do understand the reason why, but I'm saying it metaphor, I don't understand why it is that so many people speak to me as if meditation is something that you can pick up on a weekend or a two-week retreat, when meditation isn't a technique, it's called mental culture in the East. It's about the flowering of a human being, not a technique. Called mental culture. The word word in Southeast Asia for meditation, if you go to a meditation teacher, 
they will be called a teacher of Kama Bhavana, technically. That's who you'll be seeing, a, a teacher of Kama Bhavana. A teacher of Kama Bhavana is a teacher of mental culture. They may be a meditation master, but actually what they're teaching is the flowering and the unfolding of a human being to its best potential. And by the way, that doesn't always mean meditation. That could be exactly what you shouldn't be doing. Today, someone asked me about, about meditation, and I actually suggested them that they really, the meditation that they think they should be doing, actually what I suggested is they actually should be doing something very physical. Now, let me explain why. Jamie, I'm going to need your, your assistance uh, at the board. Let's, um, let's create a, a space in there under a maho. We can delete the word experience and create a box in there. A big, a big box, large. That's fine, that space is fine. Okay, who has tried, who has ever tried this? If you have emotional distress or emotional confusion, anxiety, something like that, who's ever tried to put it out, dampen it, bring it to be quiet by throwing more thoughts on it? Ever tried that? How does that work? Not so well? Anybody else? Works really well, doesn't it? No. What does it do? Makes it worse. It's kind of like taking kerosene uh, and pouring kerosene on a house that's on, on fire. Yes? Yeah. Okay. There are some exceptions. Which, which exceptions? Well, I think if, uh, if the thoughts that you're having are very confusing and you become clear about the confusing thoughts, it can lessen the confusion. Yes. I mean, you're still thoughts. Okay. What works better? What do you know works better than heaping more thoughts? Hot tub. Hmm? Hot tub. Okay, hot tub. <laughs> physical going for a walk. Anybody else? Mantras. Swimming. Mantras. Do you do mantras? Do you mean mantras with a rosary or without a rosary? Okay, without a rosary. But something, something physical with your mouth, communication. Anything else? Who is here for physical? Who's not for physical? Who's anti-physical? <laughs> There's a reason for that, right? There's a reason for going for a walk or going for a run or going to a hot tub or going for a swim or doing some yoga or Feldenkrais or skydiving, uh, scuba, yeah, that kind of thing, right? Why? Housework. Housework. Why? Same reason. It's, it's an exertion. It's a you put your mind into something that's manageable and using your body. And okay. Yes? Well, I have a feeling that I get, all my energy gets focused up here. And if, if I start doing something physical, it just kind of balances things somehow. And that some of that energy that's focused up here 
And what begins to happen when that happens, when that process occurs? Right. Okay. We call that breathing. Because when you're in contact, you're actually physically in contact as an organism, it calms down. When it's dislocated or disassociated, it becomes a head trip. And the thinking can become extremely rampant. Okay? So the entire, all over the world, if you study religious systems of meditation or meditative systems, whether it's Sufi, whether it's Hindu practices, Buddhist practices, and so on, you're going to find a similarity, which is almost every single one of them takes the neophyte or the beginner, and even to a very advanced level, starting with what? The body. The body, the body, the body, the body. So if you could write the word body on there. If you, if you introduce yourself or somebody else to meditation as an entirely mental process without reliance of the body energies flowing well, they're going to run into problems 99% of the time. That's just law. That's the way it is. Okay? So traditionally, all over the world, the training, first of all, is in the body. Now you're going to say, well, what kind of training should it be? Actually, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter. The disorganization of the body in terms of sensory flow of information is so high on most people. It's, it's phenomenally high. Most people, when they take food into their body, they don't know what it does. They cannot feel what it does to their body or they make misapprehensions about it. I meet many, 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 many people who don't know the difference between pleasure and pain. They can't sort that out. They think it's pleasurable, then they find out later it's painful. They don't even know when a physical sensation is pleasurable or painful. Bodies are a wreck. No, it's just not functionally well, they're not, it's not communicating. So the Buddha made a statement. When the Buddha was asked what's enlightenment, he made a very funny statement that's been puzzling to a lot of people ever since. But he made a, an amazing statement when he was asked a number of times, what is liberation? What is enlightenment? He said, oh, enlightenment is knowing pleasure for pleasure and pain for pain. You think, well, everybody knows that. Not at all. That's at a mental level, too. So the ability to sort out the communication, the physical communication, at a fundamental level, is absolutely crucial. As if you were, now I'm going to return to stroke patients, as if you were that sick. Am I suggesting that you're that sick? Yes. Actually, I am. You're not disabled like someone who's just had a stroke necessarily, but actually if you start to investigate your body sensation and the connectivity of your body and the integration of your body, you are going to find out some big surprises, yes? And some of those surprises are there's not a lot of integration <coughs> and there's a lot of sensory flow and uh, lack of contact happening over the body. Is that correct, Jamie? Yeah. 
Would you, would you say? Yes? Yeah. Anybody experience that? As you get deeper and deeper into exploring the level of body awareness, you find out that there's vast amounts of communication and networking that are just simply not happening that can happen. The head is not integrated with the pelvis. The head's not integrated with the feet. The hands aren't integrated all over the body. I'll give an example. One time, uh, someone in my family who is uh, in their 70s, uh, I was told had to go see a neurologist. I said, why? Because they're stumbling over their feet. Ooh, when did this start? Oh, it started about three or four months ago. I said, are you sure? They need to see, see a neurologist. I think so. We're going to have to send them to a neurologist. So I was walking with this person a couple weeks later uh, down a hospital corridor, and they're going like this. They're actually beginning to step over their feet. Hmm. That's getting pretty serious, isn't it? They're ready to fall over. So I said to that person, why don't you spend a few minutes with me? Would you like to do that? Okay, yeah, sure. Just like to spend some time with me. So we spent some time on a carpet. About 20 minutes of just working with the feet and the legs. And that got corrected. Just no connection between the head, the torso, the pelvis, and the legs anymore. goes on all the time. So how are you going, how is the body going to settle if it's all disconnected and a jumble? And we do know that the body is connected to all the mental events, yes? Okay. So the law in yoga, of which this, I'm teaching you yoga, this is classically yoga, the law in yoga is that the breath which is contact, how the breath which is also called energy, called prana, in Sanskrit, how breath moves, which just sensation through the body, through the nerves, and through the fine, the acupuncture meridians, how it moves is exactly how you experience your mind. That's called law. That's yogic law for 3,000 years. However your breath is, is how your mind is going to be experienced. That's fundamental. How your nervous system is, is how your mind is. And the direct way to get there, the direct role way to get there, is through the body. If the body isn't settled, then the feelings, the emotional states, and the mental states are going to be a jumble. Yes? Yes. How is that going to affect their mind states? And what could be done when there's a biological damage to the body? Which is probably everybody in this room. Exactly. Of some, of some type. Right. For instance, everybody in this room has some kind of learning disability. Everybody. Without exception. Everybody's been affected by probably some degree of pesticides and some chemical pollutants in their life? You've all got it. It's amazing we're even alive. It's great. All that 
to some degree can be, can be mitigated or changed. That's how plastic the organism is. Another way of saying this is, unless there's very, very extensive damage, very extensive damage, the quality of mind doesn't change, but the states can get jumbled. It's the states we're talking about. Yeah? Okay. So, how to do that? You need to be able to get things flowing again, so the nervous system, the immune system, all the different systems can find a way around that problem area and utilize new areas. You can't do it unless you put sufficient energy and use into that so it has a chance to do it. Because here's, here's the law. If you're used to doing something, you keep doing it in the same pattern. And even if you think you know of another way, the chances are we often do things in the same pattern, but we find another way to do it in the same pattern again and again and again. Did you follow? So it takes a lot of insight, usually by somebody else, to help you find a way around that to build a bridge in a really new way. And we usually don't want to do it ourselves. We're the last ones to figure it out. But even if there is neurological or biological damage, it still can be done. Not, not only do I believe this, I've seen so many cases of this that I have absolute confidence in that. It's just a question of how much time and energy do you want to put into it? Yes? Um, if we're doing something physical, such as the Feldenkrais that we just done, yes. and we're asked to watch the sensations in the body, what is it that happens when I want to fall asleep? I could feel myself going into sleep rather than being able to that can be a couple things. One, that can be just simply resistance. It could be the time of day when you're actually ready to fall asleep because we all go through periods of time where we actually um, dream during the day and we have our cycles during the day. Especially, that's why I have Jamie do this after lunch. I'm not going to teach after lunch. No, no way. <laughs> this is much, much better to do something physical than you hear a talk or you do some meditation, actually. Much better. Physical awareness. Uh, so it can be resistance. But also, when you hit an area, hit, when you enter an area, moving the arm like this, and it's a stuck area, it can tire out the nervous system very, very quickly. Ever had that doing Feldenkrais or yoga or something like that, and afterwards you're very, very tired, you just want to go to sleep, or you just want to go to sleep? That's what's happening. It's a good sign. Why? You've actually hit an area that's well defended. So what do you do? You stay awake. You just stay awake. Or you go and you have a little snooze. So how can you differentiate then between knowing if it's resistance or, or if it's something Just enough, enough experience to say, oh, that's what that is. I tell this story quite often. I've had, I was once in a meditation retreat where 9.30 every single morning I fell over for about a month and a half in a, in a five-month retreat. I fell over. I was sitting up and I fell over. I conked out. I did everything I could to stay sitting up and I still fell over. And it lasted 20 minutes to a half an hour. So fatigued, just collapsed. And all I could do was just try to stay up 
to go again. Out. And eventually it passed. But it's just going through it again and again and again and again and again. That's patience. Until it clears. Do I know the story of how it cleared? No. Do I care? No. But I just know that if you stay with something long enough, it changes. That's the secret. That's, that's the essence. Okay? Yeah. Okay, yes? Clients with really severe PTSD. Yep. And we try to settle it. Um, and they just don't love it. You know? Images and voices and memories. And, and, um, yep. Obviously, focusing on breath or grounding exercises works. Doesn't work. Doesn't work for now. No. Um, any thoughts about that? Yes. 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 There's a couple of things. It's not gonna. If it. If it's a. If it's. Sure. If you could repeat the question. Yeah. Persons with severe PTSD. Yeah. So we can hear. You're gonna have to really. Persons with really severe PTSD who um, are in such an aroused state that it's very difficult to settle them, particularly if you're trying to do something like breath work or grounding exercises. It just seems to work uh, contrary to any benefit. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I just wanted to get your reactions to that. That's when, I, that's when I address people and say, it may not be appropriate to do that kind of mindfulness work at that point. We need to find something else to do. Or practice mindfulness and practice meditative exercises outside that when it's calm to build up strength. Can that be done? Or you're saying it triggers more? I think eventually it might be able to be looking Yeah, yeah. We're looking at probably years yep. down the road. Yep, Let me, let me, let me get to a couple things, okay, first. You can write, I'll explain. When we talk about body, we, we traditionally don't just mean the physical organism of veins, nerves, and organs, okay? That's what we call the outer or gross physical body. So if you put inner, uh, sorry, if you put outer and inner body, just to the side, the side. The answer, the, what's your name again? Leon. Leon. The answer to your question, if I may be so bold, not, not a complete answer, but, but perhaps, is when we, and we encounter many people without so-called diagnosed symptoms of this, it's just whatever they do, it just ignites all kinds of things. Classically speaking, what we say is there's not enough purification work. Do you all know the word purification? In all spiritual traditions, they have purification work, work of illumination, and work of the unitive. That's the Christian mystical tradition. Purification, illuminative, and, and beatific or, or unitive. Many, many people that come to meditate can't. They can't necessarily even work with body. Why? 
there isn't sufficient what we call purification work of fundamentals that happen even before the body. There's not even enough settling, enough groundedness to be able to put any awareness on the body. Give me an example. Here's one example. Many years ago at the Dharma Center of Canada, I was leading a retreat, and there was a lady there who was a yoga teacher. And she came to study meditation, and she was having a very upset time in her life. And I was showing an exercise, which was very, very simple, I've called Oceanside Breathing, lying on the back and just moving the pelvis with the breath like this on the back, just feeling the pelvis and having the head connect to the pelvis. Very, very gentle. Oh, beautiful, relaxing, deeply done. And every time she'd do this, she'd start gasping for breath and blacking out. There was nothing that she could do at all of any body awareness without blacking out and beginning to panic. So she said, what can I do? I looked at her and I said, actually, what do you like to do? I had intuition. What do you like to do? So she said, actually, I'm at a point in my life where there's nothing I like to do anymore. Hmm. I said, what did you used to like to do? Think back to childhood. What did you like to do? Eventually we discovered horseback riding. So we're in a retreat center. I got on the phone. I phoned a horseback riding place down the road. I said, now you're going to go horseback riding every day. No more meditation. Her retreat was horseback riding. At the end of a week, she could actually meditate. It was stupid for her to be meditating when she should actually be doing something like horseback riding that she used to do as a child and brings back good memories and actually is physical, but something she can enjoy that isn't called meditation or is not threatening. Okay? So in this great manual, this oldest meditation manual, the book is divided into three sections. There's this section, which is called called Sila. Actually, uh, Jamie, if you could write that. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya. The entire path of liberation, traditionally, is divided into three sections. Not always one, two, three, but, but always explain this way. Sila, Samadhi, and Panya in Pali. Sila is ethics, life, goodness, refinement of life and the way of living that straightens out your being so you can do things well. That may have nothing to do with meditation. It may have everything to do with living a life, getting your life in order so it's actually conducive to being calm and present, not even touching meditation. The question I have for anybody who comes to see me is, What's appropriate for them, not the technique? That's the first question. Not if they come to see me and they say, oh, I'd like a meditation. That's not what I'm asking. I'm asking, what does that human being need to do to become more free? And that may not be a meditation. That may be making a cup of tea well. It may be learning how to make a really good cappuccino or an excellent biscotti or 
uh, croissant. Much more important, actually, than meditation any day. That's why I got the erythritol. That's the question that should be in the forefront of your mind, not what technique. What does that person actually need to do right now to unfurl, to demask, to let go, to open up? And it may have nothing to do with the meditation technique. Think outside the box. What do they really need? What do they need? Not what you think, not what you have in your toolkit. See? So the first thing traditionally in all spiritual paths, especially this one, is, is the life well-founded? Is it well-supported in terms of generosity, in terms of ethics, in terms of behavior, to even allow someone to concentrate? That's where I'd start. Is think right outside the box. Get right outside the box. What does that nervous system need to do that is so totally different? that could shift it. And that may have nothing to do with meditation. In the same way, this amazing discovery, if this hand is paralyzed, you think, well, just keep working it. You know, like in language, just keep, just keep repeating it. You know how when someone says to you, could you, you know, if it's another foreign language, and you just speak louder and louder, mm-hmm. and you speak at them, just say it, say it. Of course they can't. So if we want to unparalyze this hand, what do we do? Come on, you know what to do. Keep working it. Come on, keep working it. Doesn't work. Doesn't work. Nervous system doesn't work that way. Always. You don't go at the core difficulty, go around it. Find another way for the nervous system to integrate that material. And I can't give you a direct answer to that, except Horseback riding, um, skydiving. Let me, let me give you another example. There's a, a very good friend of mine who spent many, many years with his teacher, listening to Dharma classes, watching people in retreat, going blissful. They come to their teacher and make reports like this. Oh, and I was in samadhi, I was in meditative you know, bliss for days, you know, that sort of thing. I thought, wow, that's really cool. I can't even, I can't even feel blissful anytime. You know? <laughs> years and years and years. No way. Not, try meditating. He's with the teacher all the time. Five no concentration. Nothing. They talk about, oh, and then I had the unit of experience of the whole world was just one with my mind, you know, that whole thing. And the teacher's talking about vastness of open mind, unobstructed unit of bliss, all this kind of thing. Not an inkling. One day in, in uh, Indonesia, they're on a dive boat, scuba diving. Never been scuba diving before. Puts a tank on, puts a regulator in the mouth, right? Is told how to dive, you know, just go over the back of the boat, like this. Goes over finds himself over a beautiful coral reef, untouched coral reef. Unitive experience. Meditative, full unitive experience. Didn't work through meditation. It worked through putting on a scuba tank and getting over the side of a boat and going completely out of the box. 
It's not about meditation. It's about freedom. Yes. And that then gives the opportunity for more formal training methods. Because you've now experienced the nervous system has made a shift. You see, whatever you do, you have to crack, you have to crack the nut that allows the unmasking of just a little bit of a crack in the window. There must be a taste for the unitive. There must be a taste for the mind truly relaxing to get a taste. That's why I teach. When I'm teaching, there's some people in the audience that while I'm describing a state or they feel the mind or they're with me in meditation, they go, oh my God, that's it. That's all I want. A little chink, a little bit of unmasking that now allows a door, an entryway. That scuba diving experience was the entryway to meditate, not through meditation. The horseback riding was an avenue to begin to breathe again. Don't, don't beat your head against a wall if it's not working. It's not, not worth it. So I think that's difficult for some people in professions where you have a structured therapeutic session and you're maybe even not allowed by law to do something like, we're going to go skydiving today. I got you booked in for a, a dive. Or, or we're going to go skiing, you know, or something like that. I don't know what it is, but, but maybe go, oh my God, you know, you're going to break code of ethics or something like that. But, but uh, I'm allowed to do that. But uh, I'm not held, I'm only held by one code of ethics, and that's compassion. As long as no ethical boundaries are broken, uh, I don't think about just meditation. I just think about the freedom of a human being. What do they need? What do they need? It may be something like, go work in a prison for a year. Go get a job. Go cook in a kitchen. Zen tradition, you never got to meditate years ago. hundred years ago, you went to a Zen monastery. They never let you meditate. Guess where you went? The kitchen. Or the garden. Go sweep, go sweep in the kitchen for a year, and then we'll talk about you meditating. And uh, one more story, a uh, very, very traditional story and, and well-documented, is the great yogi Milarepa in Tibet, about almost a thousand years ago, he was a mess. He was, a, he was almost a psychotic mess when he met his teacher, uh, Miller, uh, Marpa. Milarepa was in bad shape. And when Marpa met him, he also knew he was going to be a great, great teacher and a great meditator. He put him to work building houses. So Milarepa comes to his teacher, I want the big empowerment. I want the big wangkur. I want to go into meditation. Please help me liberate. Marpa goes, no. My son needs a house built. It's over there. It's such and such size. It's built of rocks. Spend a year building it. So Milarepa, as a dutiful student, carries rocks, builds up the house. By the way, the last house is still, is still uh, on the border between Nepal and, and Tibet. And Marpa comes out and says, I didn't tell you to build it there. And it's completely wrong. Actually, I told you to build it over there. And it's not supposed to be a square house, a round house. No, no, you said to build that over there. No, I didn't. Over there. Start again. Now, it got so bad that Marpa had to pretend he was drunk. He said, I must have been drunk. I just must have been drunk. No, it's wrong. This, the third one is wrong. Actually, do it this way. 
No, no, you told me to do it that way. No, 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 I must have been drunk. So it got, it got harder to do this. On the last house, which I think was the seventh house, okay, not only did, Mar not only did Mill Rapa think he was never going to get the teachings, because it's now after, like eight years or seven years into it at this point, right? But Marpa's wife also never believed that Marpa would ever give him the instructions. So Marpa's wife sent him to another teacher. He gave him the rosary of, his of, of Marpa's teacher, very holy relic, and said, go off and see one of Marpa's students who will give you initiation and get out of here, because he's never going to give you the, he's never going to give you the teachings. So he left, received the initiation, went into a three-month dark retreat, and nothing happened. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Anyways, Marpa caught up to him, dragged him back, you know, the collar, sat him down, got him home, sat him down, said, you know what, you jerk? If you'd finished that last house, you never would have had to meditate at all, ever. Purification. Purification. His training wasn't meditation. His training was building seven houses. That's what purified him enough to actually do the meditation. He became one of the greatest meditators, yogis, teachers that Tibet's ever produced. So purification has a lot to do with it. Purification of what? Purification of the aspects of your being that are so rigid and so frozen and so locked that a direct approach may not work. You have to get crafty. You have to get almost sometimes devious to unlock what someone needs to get unlocked. If there's a lot of biochemical imbalance, I send them to professionals like you. Because meditation is not actually good. So, so for that reason, as a rule, which I promised my teacher and eventually he promised me, is I don't work with um, schizophrenics, psychotics, or the extremely, extremely neurotic. I will send that, those individuals to a professional who, over time, may be able to help them. Meditation actually is just too, uh, gives too much possibility for volcanic eruptions. It's the perfect opportunity to blow, especially with schizophrenics, uh, or psycho a psychotic individual will just take a, take a meditation session and want to just blow the lid right off it. I've seen that happen many times. Okay? So meditation and mindfulness, real meditation, requires a relatively healthy, relatively healthy, a relatively healthy neurotic individual. A good, a good regular neurotic individual. That, that can actually handle uh, the stresses and strains of, liber of, of things liberating in their nervous system and not freak out and not have all kinds of uh, dramas and episodes and, and uh, that sort of thing. Does that, does that help at all? A little bit? Yeah. yeah. So the first step is sila, which is purification, but it's purification of the basic life fundamentals so you're, you're un, what's the word for unrigid? You're flexible enough that one can now meditate. And in many traditions, they weren't going to let you meditate for many, many years. In the West, we all meditate right away. Why? Because we've heard it works. 
But traditionally, you would never be, in many places, you just wouldn't meditate. You work and build and all kinds of things like that until you settle down and you actually are in good shape. The third one, samadhi, is meditation. And they make a distinction between number two and number three, panya, which you can also write in Sanskrit, uh, prajna. Some people have heard of prajna. Wisdom. There's a separation made, a very clear separation made between meditation and wisdom. Not all meditation actually leads to wisdom. Wisdom means freedom. Most of what we call meditation is loving kindness, which is a feeling in your being of friendliness to yourself and friendliness to the world. That means you actually feel a sense of friendliness, connectedness, goodness inside yourself and to the rest of the world. That's the basis for unfolding freedom. If you don't have it, you've got no foundation. When it comes to samadhi, let's go back to body. When it comes to, to samadhi, the, the, the thing that needs to happen is you need to be able to make contact with sensation really, really well. And I'm going to spell it out exactly how it happens. All right. The first stage in meditation is to experience a body that's alive. You've all heard that before, yes? Okay, and of course, that was the goal of bioenergetic types, Wilhelm Reich and all those, is to have a body that's completely alive. And of course, that would be the solution to all problems. It's not, as he found, as many people found out, it's not. But the first step in all meditative traditions is to come to a place where the body, for the first time, is experienced as a totality, alive and vibrant. And that I mean technically from the tip of your nose, to the tips of your ears, to the crown, all the way through your body, to the tips of your fingers, to the tips of your toes, where every, and your teeth, and your eyeballs, and your nose hairs, everywhere, is feels totally breathing, alive, connected, effervescent. Okay? That's called technically the full body of breath. Many of you in this room have experienced it once, twice, and some of you have experienced it many, many times. Usually, when it's the first time, it's very dramatic. You think you're enlightened. Uh, it's hard to bring you down for a while, to just settle you down, because it's such a dramatic experience to feel totally, utterly alive in the body. Okay? It's a, it's, and for many people, they call it a holy or very spiritual experience. That's what we mean by body awareness. You can put perhaps body awareness or body mindfulness. Is the breath, the, the feeling of breath, the feeling of sensation permeates the entire body. And when it does, what happens to your physical body? What does it feel like? It's great. You feel joyous. You feel settled. You feel relaxed. Your body may even feel completely orgasmic. Uh, if it's very, very big experience, it feels totally orgasmic all the way through the body. But it feels internally that way, and it can last for hours or last for days. Then what we do professionally is we want to do it like that. 
until it becomes completely normal. Just like, like, oh yeah, 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 body's breathing, fine, very good. And not only do we want the body to be breathing, but we want to know how it breathes, how it gets there, and how is it sustained. How is that sustained? It's because the breath is not just respiration. What we mean by breath is the, is the energy carried through the nervous system and all the fine energy channels called the acupuncture meridians of which there are, in the Hindu yoga tradition, 300,000. In the uh, Buddhist meditation tradition, it's 72,000, or 84, depending on the tradition, but usually 72. So you've got 72,000 different fine channels that carry breath through your body, and most often, some of them are closed off, or blocked, or leaking. And that's partly why, Sue, if you're sitting or doing an exercise and all of a sudden you feel a drop in energy, it's often because they're leaking out your feet, they're leaking out your hands, they're leaking out your crown, they're leaking out your heart, and you're actually spilling energy as opposed to building energy. So for instance, if I do something as simple as this, the beautiful, beautiful movement that was shown by Leander Kane in New Zealand, something as simple as this. I feel very energized. So what's our normal thinking? Great. Why do it 20 times I'll feel more energized? Not so. If I do it three times or four times, my energy may go downhill, not up. So you need to know by sensitivity when the right amount of awareness movement is done not feeling that more is better because you start to leak energy out. And all of a sudden, you may be doing that and going, God, I'm wiped. See? So more is not necessarily better. How do we learn things as adults? What's the best way that you feel you can learn something? For instance, some of you are already turned off and I find, I find that most North Americans can't really keep their concentration on a talk for but more than an hour. Tibetan, traditionally, Tibetans will teach for five or six hours straight, Tibetan lamas, right? I keep it down to about an hour, hour and, try an hour and a half. Right? Well, I can go on for five or six hours, but, but most people can't keep that up, right? How do you learn best as an adult? And, and what kind of intervals? What kind of intervals? Yes. Short. That's how it's done. A lot of times, people are learning things too long. If you start by something with quick episodes of full attentiveness, five, ten minutes, that's much better than one hour. I'm going to make a recommendation which you may think is contrary, but is very traditional, very classical. Many of you are meditating too long, way too long. 
you should meditate in short periods of five to ten minutes to have fresh, bright awareness and keep it fresh, a short session that feels refreshing and uplifting and not a long session where the energy starts to go down and you're now fighting. I'm speaking very, very traditionally. Hmm? Be good to yourself. Yep. Is that because the body is overcharged with energy? It's too much and not able to sustain it? It, it can because it's not used to it. Okay. But sometimes it's just the way the cycle works is there's no good purpose on pushing it further. You've actually reached your peak. Mm-hmm. You need to, you know, like all of life, mm-hmm. you know when you're doing something in any part of life, mm-hmm. know when to break it off at the peak, not at the, not at the trough. Mm-hmm. And everything's got its rhythm. Right? Everything, just like teaching. You've all got your rhythm. I'm looking at you and I'm feeling what you're feeling like. And there's going to come a point and say, okay, that's it, let's take a break. Because 30 or 40% of you are actually fading out, your eyes are closing, and you're going to fall off your chairs. <laughs> there's, no, there's no purpose anymore. See? So know where the, the optimal period is. How do you need to feel that, become sensitive to that? Yes. That's correct. That's correct. Yeah. And that's traditional. That's traditional. In all, so breath is what we call energy work. And another word for breath meditation is actually energy yoga. And that's what you do all day. I don't know if you know that. Yeah? You know that? All day long, you're, you're practicing energy yoga, whether you're practicing energy yoga or not. That's what we do as human beings. We exchange energy by communicating. Physically, mentally, non-verbally. Most of what we're doing right now is non-verbal communication. Some of you really couldn't care what I say. Some of you don't care. Just don't care. You might walk away and go, wow, I got the feeling of that, but I didn't really remember what he said. Most of what we do when we communicate, 80% of it, is non-verbal communication. It's most of it. And I recommend that if you're going to learn something as an adult, and even as a child, make it short sessions, and you build it up as you feel more confidence, and your energies increase, and you feel more comfortable doing it. A one-hour session can be the worst thing that you can possibly do. A 10-minute session could be the best thing that you do until you can build up to 20 minutes. Now, here's, another, here's, here's the opposite side to that. Until you get to, if you could write on the board, 30 minutes. Until you can hold your concentration, your attention, on a place on your body for 30 minutes, give or take five minutes. That's my experience. The sensation of breath, what I mean by, by contact, will not sufficiently build for it to flow well. So a five or ten minute session of concentration can be good for confidence, but it doesn't necessarily build enough continuum of breath charge sensation for it to pop through the nervous system 
and flow through the body. Yeah. So what, what do you mean actually by focus on some part of the body? Let me give you an example. If you focus the tip of your nose, which is very typical for breath meditation, I'm just going to tell you what happens, okay? Don't believe me, go try it. It's just classic stuff. If you focus the tip of your nose, put your eyes about here, and you actually put your mental focus here, and you feel breath here, eventually it's going to pop these two channels, which run like this. It might go through your face. It's little, little tiny channels all through your face, and you may feel it all through your face. Your eyebrows will... Your, your eyes will water and move, and your face will flutter, and your whole face will start to de-armor. But eventually, it's going to flow, sensation will flow up your nose and into your forehead. I predict it. Three days. I can, tell, I can almost tell you to the day, for most of you, when it's going to happen. Okay? It's just the way it is. Now, for it to begin to move, it needs long enough to build a charge. I don't know how best to describe that except a charge, like a, like a, enough focus for it to start to move. So five or ten minutes is not usually sufficient. Now, after it's moved, five or ten minutes is usually sufficient. Why do we need four, six, eight hours a day, unbroken? Because every time you interrupt it by going and talking, and getting distracted, you actually break the breath and the contact. The best thing that you can do is keep up a continuity of contact for longer and longer and longer, and you're going to find right away that you're going to have a very, very different experience. To get the body of breath, to get the breath to actually go right through the body is going to mean hour after hour after hour after hour, staying with contact and mindfulness and interest until it shoots through. Sometimes it does quickly, sometimes it does step by step. This may be some of the difficulty in the therapeutic situation, is simply not enough time and not enough continuity. So what are they doing with stroke patients now? Is it Taub? Yeah, Dr. Taub? I can't remember his first name. In Alabama? Six hours straight with stroke patients for two weeks and getting fantastic results. One hour, two hours, every three days in a week is simply not enough. All right. When we do full-on retreats, I like people to get up to 20 hours a day. Uh, that, 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 that had some effect, didn't it? Meditation, 20 hours a day. That includes defecation, peeing, eating, uh, walking, all those kinds of things, which we don't divorce from actually meditation. But, but a continuum, a continuum of practice that's unbroken, hour after hour after hour after hour. But if you push it, you lose it. So if you can't do 20 hours, why would you do 20 hours when all you're doing is causing pain and causing distress in your system. Much better to do six short sessions in a day than eight short sessions, and then four sessions in an hour, and build it up until you're confident. Much better. It's a very classic way of practicing. Yes? Um, so you mentioned that uh, eventually you need that 
Full on, full on. Uh, once, once that charge, when you're in retreat or you're doing four or five hours a day, once it's been established and it starts to flow, even the next day it takes shorter and shorter time to establish it. But it's something that you have been doing on a constant basis. That's correct. You would, you would lose it if you were not. That, that's correct. And it can be lost as simple as this. You've been meditating, you've been, been watching the breath or sensation for a couple hours and you're feeling it begin to move in your body and then you go what typically what a lot of meditators because they get excited it's really nice they go so how's your meditation going (laughs) or maybe they'll go to the kitchen so uh, anything I can do in the kitchen so they'll dissipate all that building up by talking, which is number one enemy, or they'll start to move fast because they're kind of excited. Or they'll go, you know, I just think like, maybe what I'll do is I'll chop a lot of wood right now. Or so, so speediness, talking, talking's number one. And all of a sudden they find it's gone. I use some of that meditation time just to settle. Exactly. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Thank you. That was, that's perfect. And I'm thinking, well, maybe if I did some physical... Right. <laughs> right. Before I start Absolutely to right on. So, five or ten minutes of something physically contacting, like Jamie showed you, right? Something along those lines, yoga, or something that works for you, that, that works is 100% better than going and sitting or standing in meditation and waiting 40 minutes for it to happen, or never. So preparation's everything. May I, may I be so bold? It, it happens when you become an elder, well, in the society. <clears throat> Let me be so bold. Some of meditation instruction that's been taught <clears throat> is asked backwards. It's untraditional. It is traditional that you learn some type of body awareness yoga for many years. So you, when you start to formally practice in a posture, you can bring about that energy very, very quickly. You're already there. You hit it right on. It's much better that you do 10 or 15 minutes of something that brings about body contact like yoga or Feldenkrais and you know it works or kendo or karate or something Aikido uh, uh, Qigong Tai Chi, I don't care what it is you do that and you'll find that when you go to sit in meditation you're meditating Instead of trying to contact your bum first, contact your whole body, immerse your whole body, and then when you go to meditate in a posture, whether it's standing or walking, you're already there. Don't do a mental trip. 
I think a lot of meditation for some people is very frustrating. Am I right? Because it's, it's, it's not classically taught. I don't know why. It's, for most people, it's difficult. It's not being taught. It's not classically taught. Every tradition I know about, you would spend time studying some type of energy yoga of some tradition so that when you go and sit formally or stand formally in meditation, you're going to have a very energized being that's bright, alert, and vivid. That's traditional. That's traditional. That's why I like to have Jamie do something with you after lunch. So that when you come to a class, there's more vivid, besides the fact that it's a beautiful discovery, and beautiful lessons that Jamie's showing you, you're actually have a whole a bit of a different energy to listen to. Okay. Should we take a break? Ready? Let's go for a break and come back in about uh, 15 minutes.